Good evening. How are y'all? Good. One of you is doing well. It's great. All right, we're in Haggai, so you can go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> this microphone feels very loud. We're going to pray, and we'll dive right in. Lord, we come to you now and just uh, thank you for this night. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to worship you in the middle of the week. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, dig into your word and to um, grow in our understanding of who you are. As always, as we uh, study, I, I pray for honesty tonight, um, particularly as we talk about areas uh, where repentance is needed. And then also as we talk about uh, our perspectives on um, blessings for obedience. Uh, Lord, I, I confess that I do not have everything figured out that I'm called to teach on tonight. And so I pray that in some way, uh, my foolishness would show your wisdom. Uh, I'm thankful that that's a biblical possibility, and I'm leaning on it heavily tonight, uh, because you are great and greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's two sort of housekeeping things uh, that I want to touch on before we uh, dive back into the text. First is, uh, we've changed our schedule a little bit. On the original schedule, we were going to do one week in Haggai, and now we're going to do two weeks, so this is our second week in it, and then next week, we will not have any scheduled activities on Wednesday night, and we encourage you to engage your neighbors and workmates and get to know other people and uh, utilize Wednesday off, not just to sit at home in front of the TV, but to uh, meet other people and engage them. And then after that, we'll have three more studies. Morse Bean is going to teach uh, Zechariah. That's what's after Haggai, right? Yes, Zechariah. Uh, he'll teach two, two weeks on that. And then I'll close with Malachi. Um, so we, we have, after tonight, three more studies. And as a church, we will have studied and taught all the way through the Old Testament, which is a pretty significant thing, I think. So I'm, uh, I'm super encouraged by that. So I wanted to let you all know the details. And then after that, um, we'll have sort of a fall break. Um, everyone's traveling that next week usually or, or having people travel to them for uh, Thanksgiving uh, celebrations. And what we're going to do is normally the week after that, we have our night of recounting, which we do every year, um, which uh, we go out of Psalm 9 and just talking about recounting the deeds of the Lord. Uh, we've done this for years. We're going to push that to December 9th. So if you're a scheduled person, you probably want to write that down. December 9th. And this year... Um, we don't have many events uh, that we really do it up for uh, as a church, and our goal this year is to really do it up on this one. Um, we have so much to be thankful for. God has blessed us so immensely that our hope this year is not to just have, uh, in, 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 in past years we've done sort of a time of worship and some sort of an open mic, and it's the open mic thing where no one talks very much for like 30 minutes, and then at the end when we need to close, there's like five people waiting, and it's awkward. We're not going to do that again this year. Um, what I'm hoping to do is um, some video testimonies, hear from uh, the pastors here, hear from the pastors at both of our church plants, hear from members, um, and then have a significant time of, of praise and worship. And so um, it'll be a little longer this year and a little more involved, and hopefully um, that much more of a blessing and uh, a way to really honor and glorify God, because we are, we're a very, very um, blessed group of uh, believers so that'll be December 9th. The last thing is the boys camp out. Um, if uh, the, the weather is looking to turn on us, and so uh, Friday night, I, I believe there's a chance for, well, as it reads, it's a 100% chance for two and a half inches of rain. So, uh, you know, it could go either way. It's Texas. Uh, but be looking for a weather email. We're having the camp out one way or another. If it is not uh, the flood, we will have it outside, like normal campouts. If it is crazy, um, we will have a highly supervised, I'm told, campout in this room for the boys. Highly supervised. So, um, y'all pray for that. Please pray for that. Um, but be looking for the emails. We'll, we'll keep y'all up to date. Um, and it may be that it's... You know, the change is made. If we make a change, it may be midday Friday, just kind of depending on what happens. But uh, we're, we're watching the weather, and it's, it's not looking promising. It's likely we'll be in this room, but um, either way, it'll be a fun time. 
Haggai. <clears throat> Last week we began it. Uh, this week we will, we will go to chapter 2. And there are only two chapters, so that's where we will end. Um, we had an outline last week of uh, these three details, and uh, Dever, in his, in his Old Testament survey, he uses the, the lingo of investments and return on investments uh, to kind of describe what's going on in these two chapters. It's four prophecies making up two chapters um, uh, of Haggai. And the three things in the outline were that poor investments show themselves, Bad investment strategies must be corrected, and sound investments prove themselves in their returns. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're probably thinking they lost their minds. They're talking about money things and, and businessy things, and we're talking about church things. You can't mix those two. It's actually a really good illustration. We're not going to refer to people as giving units. We never will when we start using these illustrations. However, uh, it's good. It, it, it's fitting. And so what we saw last week was that poor investments show themselves. Why did God call his people to consider their ways last week? What were the poor investments that they were making that were showing? Why did God call his people to consider their ways? <clears throat> they were investing in their own homes, really, more than anything. As opposed to what? The temple. And why was that a problem? God's supposed to be first. And what we're seeing is that in their priorities and the way they're spending their time and the way that they're spending their money, they're showing that they're not putting God first, in fact. They have what, what, we, what we have referred to as paneled houses, which is a very, very fancy form of, of house. And so uh, they had paneled houses, and they were spending their money on it, and it was interesting because they were buying all sorts of different things. Um, and they had been back from the exile for 16 years at this point. And so there's kind of this theme that we've seen throughout the prophets where um, God's people have these seasons of peace and we have this terrible tendency to become um, self-sufficient, which I think y'all talked about on Sunday. And then that self-sufficiency inevitably leads to self-indulgence because if I'm the one making the calls and I'm the one taking care of everything, then dang it, I'm going to have it the way that I want it to be and I will drive what I want to drive and live where I want to live and eat what I want to eat because I work hard for this money. And we have a view of it where through a time of blessing and through a time of peace, the sad reality is God's not in the equation anywhere and it's seen in how we're spending our money and our time. So God calls his people to consider their ways and then we talked um, toward the end of the, the study last week about you know, this building up of the temple and what it would say about their view of God, what it would say about their view of being restored um, after having been exiled. And we found, as we dug a little deeper, we went over to 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, and we saw that, um, that in fact, we are the temple of God. And so there's a connection there that's uh, significant. And the question that we considered that I want to ask again is, how do we build up the temple today? Because they're being called to build up the temple rather than build their own homes and buy their own nice stuff. So how do we build up the temple today? To be supportive of your church. Yep. Yep. Be supportive of your church. Investing back in God's people. Absolutely. What are some ways we invest in, in God's people? What, what are we hoping for, and how are we aiming to achieve the hopes? Anytime you want to get something done, it's always good to say, what is the desired outcome, and what is the next step to the desired outcome? That's a good thing. If you find yourself spinning your wheels, like I do a lot, um, what is the desired outcome, and what is the next step toward that desired outcome? That keeps us moving. If our desired outcome, uh, well, first of all, what is our desired outcome for one another? if we are the temple? To be built up? Yeah, absolutely. What? Unity. Unity, absolutely. We don't create it, we preserve it. Brad preached an important sermon on that years ago. What else? Holiness. Yeah, we're people who are set apart. And so what we're getting at here is the way that we build up the temple today is by caring about the holiness 
of the people around you and caring about how they're doing. There's so much in Scripture that says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Put others first. Count others more significant as yourselves. Um, imitate Christ's humility the way that he put others first. You do the same thing. And that is significant in the way that we can see whether or not we're becoming self-serving, self-indulgent people who aren't putting their thoughts towards God, or if we are people who put our thoughts towards God and do so by serving his people, by serving others. So that's where we went last week, and that poor investments show themselves. These people had a, a season of peace after being exiled. God had brought them back. They were 16 years into it, and all they had to show for were a bunch of paneled houses, and there was no temple for the Lord. And he cared about that because it was significant of showing that he was dwelling in their midst and he was, in fact, still God. And he, in fact, still had a people and he, in fact, still had a kingdom that was moving forward, even though his people had fumbled it so terribly so often. So, tonight, we're going to the next two points, which the first one is found in verses 12 through 15. And it's that bad investment strategies must be corrected. And so that is a, those are financial and business terms, and let's see what we're talking about biblically. Bad investments uh, strategies uh, must be corrected. Look at verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So what we're talking about here is what? How did they correct their bad investments? One word would sum it up. Obedience. obedience. How'd they get to obedience? They were in disobedience. They had to get to obedience. How'd they get there? They made God a priority. So how did they go from not making God a priority to making God the priority? What? Fear the Lord. They weren't fearing him, now they do fear him. What'd you say? They, realize, they weren't realizing his presence, now they are realizing his presence. How do we go from each of those bad things to the good things? What does it take? Someone said repentance. I know they said it. I heard it. It came out, and we're going with it. Yeah, repentance. That, that, what we're talking about, bad investment strategies need to be corrected. We're not just talking about a change that could potentially be beneficial we're talking about repentance. We're talking about um, repentance of your priorities. So as we, as we work through these details, I want you to be thinking, do you think in those terms? Like, do you ever look at your schedule and say, I need to repent. This looks nothing like I really love, value, treasure God more than anything. Or looking at the priorities shown in your bank account or your, or your budget or your, your balance sheet. Do you ever look at that and think, you know what, we need to repent? Maybe you get to one line item and go, look, we spend $400 on Chick-fil-A. Let's repent. This is ridiculous and clearly an imbalance that we don't value God enough. But there is a reality that when we look at our calendars and we look at our bank balances, we look at the things that reveal what our actual priorities are, that there are times when we need to repent. It's appropriate to repent, as it was appropriate for them to repent, because what they were doing was getting them nowhere fast. So in these verses, there's three elements of repentance that are really important for us to, to consider. And the three elements of repentance uh, we're going to try to find by answering questions. And the first question is, what is the action of repentance? We've already said it in a hundred different ways. What is the one word that begins with an O that is the action of repentance? Obedience, absolutely. So if you're writing notes, right, the action of repentance is obedience. What is the motivation of repentance? We've already said it in a million ways, but it starts with an F. Of the Lord. Yes, fear of the Lord, absolutely. So the action of repentance is obedience. The motivation of the repentance is proper fear of the Lord. 
This, is, this one was interesting to me. What is the cause of repentance? And you can't say fear and obedience because that's not right. Something for it. In those verses, what's the cause of repentance? Punishment? In a way, that's part of it. Say it again. Our desire to please God? That's part of it. Sorrow over the sin? Part of it. Absolutely. There's something that precedes all those things. Yes, you're getting warmer. Spirit changes the hearts. Yeah, I think y'all said at the same time, you both get gold stars. It's very, very well done. <laughs> the Lord stirring the spirits of his people. It says, he says, I'm with you. And in verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. And then it says, um, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And then they went to work. So these, there's, it's interesting here that the action of the repentance is obedience. The motivation that causes the action is the fear of the Lord. And the cause of this actual repentance, where they go from not doing what they're supposed to be doing to doing what they're supposed to be doing, even with the right heart. Because remember, God's not interested at all in you just changing your behavior. He aims at the heart. So he's not just saying, you guys are investing too much in your houses. You just need to change your balance sheet, change your, move these line items, and make it at least look like you care about the temple. He's not saying that. He's not just going after the behavior. He's going after the heart. And what's interesting is the cause of the repentance is that the Lord stirs the spirit. So this leads us to a good way to review our own lives. So consider these things. Don't answer them out loud. It'll be awkward for everybody if you do. But you can write them down in your notes. One, is there any issue of disobedience in your life that you're not addressing? What hinders you from obeying in that area? Is there any area where you're like... This is how I've done it for a long time. And, you be, and then you get into that realm of, well, this is who I am. And your, your, your identity is wrapped up and defined by some sin. Maybe it's I'm just a, an anxious person. I'm just an angry person. I'm just a rude person. I'm just a heartless person, whatever it might be. Um, we're not defined by those things. And so those are areas where I, I would ask you to consider in your own life, is there an issue of disobedience in your life that you're not addressing? And what is hindering you? from obeying God in that area. It may be something in your finances. And the thing hindering you may be, I won't have enough money to do these other things. Or I won't be able to pay this bill. Or I won't be able to go out to eat as much. Whatever it might be. I mean, that sounds shallow, but the reality is we will make decisions on our finances based on how often we can go out to eat. It is, I, I marvel at the families who never go out to eat. It amazes me that you spend so much amazing time planning the meals, buying the food, and even cooking the food. And then sometimes we get into these seasons of life where it's like, you know, there's soccer practice every night, and you, you just go and you get something on the way. But there's this reality here that it's like, what keeps us from doing what we need to be doing? And sometimes it is small things like that. And in fact, I would probably argue, not argue, suggest, most of the time it's little things that we're holding on to that requires sacrifice. It requires the discipline and the sacrifice of repentance. The second thing is, what are you doing to cultivate the fear of God in your life? It's a pretty deep question. I kind of stopped when I was going through my notes and I ran across it. What are you doing to cultivate the fear of God in your life? So, hypothetically speaking, so that no one has to speak on their own issues or whatever, what are some things we could do to cultivate the fear of God in our lives? Remember his power? Yeah. Yeah. Remember how he has punished sin in the past and how it's very real, it's very real effects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that's a really good one for us. Like, remember, he knows what you're doing. Like, <laughs> a lot of us know that, and we don't care. We're going to keep saying what we're saying, watching what we're watching, thinking what we're thinking. We know that God sees everything, but we're not. We don't think about it. In fact, the way that we keep moving in the sin that we move in is by not thinking about the fact that God is with you. He's present. Remember the temple thing. That's what we're talking about here. 
The presence of God, where he dwells, and his people. So remembering that God is present is hugely significant. Remembering that your body is a temple is hugely significant. The third thing is, have you been stirred by the Lord, and how do you know? This is, this is where you have to be very personally uh, honest with yourself. Because you could say, have I been stirred by the Lord, how do I know? Well, I do, I do lots of good things, you could say. Oh, okay, well, what's the motivation behind that? Because for you to have been stirred by the Lord, you'd have to say, I'm not the kind of person that would normally do any good things. I'm utterly selfish. So to do good things for anybody, especially when there's no immediate reward or gratification for myself, must be of the Lord. But there's, a, there's, room, there's supposed to be room in your life as a Christian to think through realities like that, to think through, have I been stirred by the Lord and how would I know? And then take that and, and fi- fix it to something specific. Like, I need to be stirred by the Lord in this area. What is the evidence that I have not been stirred by the Lord in this area? What is possible evidence that I am being stirred by the Lord in this area? What can I thank him for right now regarding this thing? And how can I stir up the fear of the Lord more so that, so that I might see more stirring by God? How can I make an appeal? How, what am I, is there a, something in the way that I'm praying? Is there something in the condition of my heart? Is there something in the way that I think about how God actually moves? They're all really kind of deep questions, but it, it's worthwhile because this is, this is what God means when he says, consider your ways. This is what he means. Deborah has a note that none of the fruit of repentance will ever appear if you are hardened against correction and conviction. And I'm going to stop there. There's more to the quote. But he says, there will be no fruit of repentance if you're the kind of person who is hardened against correction and conviction. That is like, like our, our culture is, if you tell them they're wrong, who are you? Who are you to tell me I'm wrong? And that, that's a sign of being hardened against conviction or hardened against correction. I mean, you can see it in your kids. I mean, I, that, that, we had a, a run for the last 48 hours, it would appear, of one of my, my children, me saying, hey, you need to not do that. And that, that child chose to look at me and say, but I want to. And I'm like, okay, you need to not do that. But I want to. And it, as if somehow the but I want to would result in me saying, oh, I didn't take that into account. Why don't you go ahead and burn your hand off or whatever it is that they're trying to get a hold of or, or whatever. And so um, the, if we're hardened against correction and conviction, um, uh, we'll not see the fruit of repentance. And it's easy to, to pick on kiddos because, well, they're so honest. But I think the adults have just as big of a struggle with this, if not more, than kids. Being hard. I mean, how do you respond if someone corrects you or if someone says something to you in hopes of bringing conviction because they see an area of your life where conviction needs to set in? I don't know a whole lot of people who really just immediately drop their guard and openly welcome such loving words from a friend. Although that's what they're called biblically. And so this, uh, this design here is that we won't see the fruit of repentance if we're hardening against correction and conviction. And then he goes on to say, and frankly, this is, this is important, all of us need correction most in the area of our lives where we listen the least. So write that down and think about it, see if you find that to be true. All of us need correction most in the areas of our lives where we listen the least. Do y'all think that's true? And if so, why? Need correction the most in the areas that we listen the least. There's a reason behind you listening the least in that area? Yeah. Man, I think what you said was way easier. I totally confused it. What did you say originally? There's a reason... Yes, there's a reason behind why you don't listen to that correction. Why else do y'all think that's true? Or if you do, why so? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. See, that, this is, that, that's what we do. It's, that's what I do. Uh, I, I may, um, I mean, we're, we can even patronize each other where it's like, okay, okay, I hear you. Sure. Oh, yeah, I'll pray about that. You know, like, 
but we're already so utterly convinced as to being right. That's the interesting thing, like Romans 14, if you struggle with this, that's a really great uh, study, is look at Romans 14, because you're called to be fully convinced as to what you believe. We're not supposed to be a bunch of wishy-washy people who are tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. At part of the reason we put such an emphasis on teaching and preaching here is because we believe the Bible has that emphasis so that the people of God will be utterly informed and fully convinced as to what they believe. So maybe even more so for a body that's fully convinced, you have to be careful to remain teachable. Because Romans 14 has a balance of being fully convinced yet totally teachable. Fully convinced yet totally teachable. And we get into this spot where we, the, correction, the correction we need the most is in areas of our lives where we listen the least because we stop being teachable in an area. Maybe it's finances. Maybe you're like, you know what? I'm awesome with money. And I give regularly. So I don't need to hear anything. And all of a sudden, okay, well, you're fully convinced, but you're no longer teachable. Or maybe it's with parenting. You know what? I got this figured out. Whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm convinced, and I don't care how you do things. Well, you're not teachable anymore. Some of us, maybe we need to be more fully convinced because we're too teachable because all you do is read parenting books and think, well, I stink at parenting because I don't do anything right. So there's a balance here. Um, Consider for a moment the faithfulness of Haggai. What if he had not listened to God? Uh, I've mentioned to y'all that (laughs) the way the prophets were presented to me as a kid left me as a kid saying, oh man, how cool must that have been to hear directly from God? I mean, that must have been so awesome. Here I am listening to this old lady who teaches Sunday school, and these people are hearing from God. How amazing is that? But what we know after our study through the prophets is that wasn't a walk through the park. That was hard. But um, think about the faithfulness of Haggai. What if he had not listened to God? Dever has a note uh, on that that he says, when God intends to move his people, he sends them faithful preachers to do it. When God intends to move his people, he sends them faithful preachers to do it. You may consider if you believe that or not. So bad investment strategies have to be corrected. So where we are not obedient or where we're faithless, there there has to be repentance. And repentance, it's tangible. There's something that we stop doing and there's something that we begin doing because of a, a heart change, because of the fear of the Lord. The third thing is that sound investments prove themselves in their returns. Sound investments prove themselves in the returns. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 in the second chapter of Haggai. And I just want to be honest with y'all. When we start talking about worldly blessings, like blessings during this lifetime, I get uncomfortable. I don't, I don't fully know why. There's something there. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm uh, well, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's look at uh, two one through nine. It says, "In the seventh year of the month, twenty-first year of uh, this, in the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes?" Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The first thing I want us to see is that God blesses obedience with spiritual blessings. Now you may be thinking, that's what I was expecting you to say. Spiritual blessings. That's far less tangible. But he does. He blesses obedience with spiritual blessings. First in 2.5, God has promised to remain with them. This is a spiritual blessing because we're talking about the presence of God. 
God promises them his presence. Why does this matter? Why would this be significant? Because it's huge. Why? How, yeah, how else would they survive? And, and what happened 16 years earlier? They were in captivity. So for God to say to a people who have been um, overthrown by a foreign government, taken into captivity, stayed there for a while, then brought back, and then given these 16 years of peace, for God to say, I will be with you, in the future, as you move in these things, is very, very significant. Which leads to the second thing, that God promises his blessing of peace. Why would that be significant? What have these people lived through? What happened when they were in exile? Yeah, lost freedom, made slaves. Haman. Yeah. What else happened? What was that like? <laughs> yeah. 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 And then when they came home for those 16 years, they had all that money and they were building these panel houses and they were they were it was bye, bye, bye. And, and what happened? They turned away from God. Did they ever have enough when they kept buying and buying and buying? No, they're insatiable. Yeah, they, and, and, and even like they would go to get things and there wouldn't be as much. And they, it, they were likened to people who make a check and put it in a pocket that has a hole, which uniquely this pocket does have a hole in it. So I can't put anything in my left pocket of these shorts. But they, they, that's what they were likened to, where it's just like you go to get something and it's, there's less there. And it's, God says, because, because I, I, I blew it away. Says you look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you bought, when you brought it home, I blew it away. Imagine opening the back of your car, unloading the groceries, and putting them inside, and saying, "I, I had ten bags at the store, and there's five here. What happened between there and here?" And imagine if the reason was God just blew it away. Not you left it, or one of the kids dropped it in the driveway, or whatever. God just blew it away. That's what was going on with them. They go to check their bank accounts. I could have sworn there was X amount in there, and now there's half of X amount in there. What? God blew it away. So even in their time of peace, when they returned from the exile, peace, they really didn't have much peace because there was this turmoil. There was this lack. There was this trying to get something out of something that they, trying to get happiness and peace out of something that never promised it. And so um, here, God promises to be with him, promises him shalom, peace, um, which we could spend a whole study on that, but we're not... And then God promises in verse 2, in 2, 7, he says, I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. So the third promise, the third spiritual blessing is that, that he will bless his people with his glory. His glory will come to them. Um, how would we know if we thought this to be significant? God promises that his glory will come to his people. How, how would we know that this was significant to us? Uh-huh. How would we know that how would we know right now that it would be a significant thing for God's glory to come to us? Cuz nothing can take it away. Yeah, if something's significant, you chase after it. Why would we chase after God's glory? It's our created purpose. You don't think it's a say? Explain that. Yeah. Yeah. What even is it? What are we talking about? When we say the glory of God. What is that? Oh, come on, church people. We say it all the time, right? Doing what pleases him. Okay. Making his name known. 
Ja? 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 And what does that do for his glory? It shows it off. That's a, that's a great way to say it. What we're talking about is how God is seen. How he is how when people see God, what, what is it that they're seeing? Or when they think they're seeing God, what are, what are they seeing? So like for us to be the temple and to be for the temple to be filled with glory, we should be filled with that which is indicative of God. And so what we're talking about here is the epitome and the presence of truth as it exists in God. And so in our world, it's interesting because the truth about God is, is twisted and it becomes a lie the same way it did in the garden. It's not, it, some people will just say he doesn't exist, but then others will say, well, he's like this or he does this, and you twist it and twist it. And it's interesting. Like, if you wonder if this struggle is real, just watch the news. I say it all the time. Again and again and again, the truth about God is twisted. And so they are not seeing God for as glorious as he is. They're not seeing it truth. And so if we're a people who care about the presence of the glory of God, we're a people who care deeply about truth and want to put that on display in every single area of our lives. That was the problem here in Haggai. They were saying, yes, we're God's people, but all they were doing was building new stuff and buying new stuff. That was it. That was their main focus. And that was wrong. I mean, if we really dig into this and look at it, this is very convicting. I, I was talking to someone last week afterwards, and he said, man, I think 90% of my decisions are based on comfort, not need. I mean, 90% of the decisions I make in a day are on things that are about comfort. What do I want to wear? What do I want to eat? Where do we want to go? How do we want to spend time? What show do you want to watch? And I think that's probably true for a lot of us. I think if we were really to not harden ourselves against the conviction and the um, the realities that are, that are brought forth in this, I think the result would be change. I think everyone in this room would have something significant that would be changed because God blesses obedience with these spiritual blessings. But it's not just spiritual blessings. Look at verse 10. 2.10. This is where it gets weird. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. He's saying, if you have something that's holy and you're carrying around something else touches it, does it become holy? They said, no, that's not what the law says. He said, okay, good. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, these things, the, the bread or the stew or all those things that are mentioned, does it become unholy? And the priest answered and said, it does become un unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. This is where he's blown away what they've built up. You came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil. Think about that. In modern day terms of the God who is unchanging, who still moves like this. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, and with hail. Side story, the nicest truck I ever bought. I was like 20 years old and a totally entitled punk. And I bought my dream truck. Within a few months, the biggest hailstorm that Dallas has ever seen came and did over $10,000 worth of damage on that truck. So when I read verses like this, I have something to go back to. Because I cried that night. Um, I struck you on the products of your toil, your, with blight, mildew, and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. And listen to this. This is crazy. I did all those things. You still didn't turn to me. You were still trying to put your hope in your stuff. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, God is being specific. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barns? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, 
I will bless you. In a first read, it's a little bit hard to understand, but what he's saying is, if you have seed in the barn right now, that's the wrong place because it needs to be in the ground because what I'm going to do as y'all turn and y'all, y'all move in obedience, I am going to bless you. The yield from the vine is going to be significant. As it has been poor in days past, in this movement of obedience, I'm going to change things and I'm going to bless you abundantly. That's that whole one man plants, one man waters, but only God gives the growth. You may have a beautiful garden, but you cannot actually make anything grow. All you can do is plant water and weed. But you cannot make anything grow. None of us has the ability to make anything grow because God causes the growth. And here he's saying, you know what? I'm going to cause a lot of it. I hope there's no seed in the barn. I hope it's in the ground because I'm going to cause a lot of growth. So God blesses obedience with physical blessings. So the physical blessing in this section is obviously um, a, a yield from what they have put in the ground. So uh, the obvious question, do you think like this? Do you ever think about spiritual blessings or physical blessings through obedience? You don't have to turn there, um, but in Matthew 6, it says this, and this is the, a little thing called the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, Jesus preaching is always a good sermon to pay attention to. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's indicating the way you practice your righteousness, the heart behind it, will affect a very real reward from a very real God who's in heaven. And he goes on to say, um, and giving to the needy, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you give something in secret, do you anticipate and maybe even use it as a motivation that God will reward you? It would appear that God intends reward as motivation for obedience. I'll say that again because it sounds a little weird. God intends reward to be a motivation for you to be obedient. He's saying, do these things, but do them rightly. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he talks about praying. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray loudly. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. says the same thing about fasting. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, you're not earning anything. That's the important thing to remember here. When we're talking about reward, even physical reward, maybe especially physical reward, you're not earning something. You're not saying, you know, I'm going to go help some poor people so God will make me rich. Or I'm going to pray in private so that God will make me rich. We're not, we're not trying to earn some, some worldly thing. The goal is that when we treasure God most, then whatever blessing comes from the obedience to God who we treasure most, most is, a, is a huge blessing in itself, whether it is an eternal, like down the road, heaven blessing, or a right now physical blessing. But I think at the very least, we need to consider tonight that there are actual blessings that come from obedience in life. Here he says, hey guys, you've been going 16 years, working your tails off, trying to buy, 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 buy. It's never enough. And you know what? If you will turn from that, give some time to building up the temple, which is indicative of my presence, then you know what? That same work you've been doing, the seeds that are already in the ground, hopefully they're not in the barn, I will bless you physically with more yield from those same seeds. That's what he's saying here. So I think the, the takeaway for us is that we trust God's timing with God's blessings. We don't have a formula here to say, if you want your physical blessings on earth, do it in this way. And if you're cool with it being an eternal blessing, like in heaven, like laying up treasure in heaven, then you do it this way. We treasure God the most and we obey him and we trust that he blesses obedience. Sometimes he will bless it right now. Sometimes he will bless it eternally in heaven. This comes back to this reality that God will never give you that which is bad for you. But we don't obey God just to try to get something that we want more than God. We obey God because we trust him, we love him, 
and we desire to honor him. We care about the presence of his glory and we trust him to either bless us now in something physical, something tangible, or maybe it's eternal. And whether he does it now or later does not affect our obedience. We obey because he's our greatest treasure. Now, when it comes to worldly blessings, like something that is tangible, like I'll give you, essentially what he's saying in, the, in this is, I'm going to give you more money. You're going to get more of a return on your investment because of investing rightly in me. There's a book that I'm reading right now, and I, I'm going to, as I work through this, I want to communicate with the body more on this because I think this is an area that is confusing for a lot of people. Uh, this guy, Joe Rigney, wrote a book called The Things of Earth, uh, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. And when I first saw that, I thought, okay, you know, because a lot of us have this view of like the things of earth just being bad. The earth is evil. Everyone in it's evil. It's just going terrible. Things are going from bad to worse. A lot of us have that view, and we don't realize how utterly blessed we are, even in the temporal things that are indicative of more eternal things. And so this book intrigued me, and it intrigued me any, even more when I realized the foreword is by John Piper, because this is not a book Piper would write. But it is a book he will write a foreword for because he knows it's not a book he would write. And in fact, as you read it, Piper says, this is a book I need because I have such a tendency toward um, the terrible state of the world and how we have to resist things that I, John Piper, have a problem enjoying the blessings of um, the gifts of the things of earth. And so it's, based, it's written on the premise of the, there's an old hymn that says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the guy, Joe Rigney, is saying, maybe they grow strangely bright. Maybe we learn to really significantly enjoy God's gifts um, in light of grace, as opposed to not care about anything. So um, there's a lot of work to be done on that concept in this body, I think. So there's this final thing that we will touch on briefly, and it's in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four. Go ahead and turn over there. Jeremiah twenty two twenty four says this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. That's the background we need. We see God saying to some king at some point, you're a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off. That's the background we need to go back to Haggai and see in the last verses he has the blessings for his people, and then it says in verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to his rebel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the, the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The guy mentioned over in Jeremiah is Zerubbabel's grandfather. Zerubbabel's grandfather was a bad king, and he was leading Israel in a bad way. And so Zerubbabel's grandfather, God looked at him and said, I will make you as a signet ring that I have taken off and thrown away. That was God's response to Zerubbabel's grandfather. But with Zerubbabel, he's saying, I will make you like a signet ring. It's this beautiful promise that if you don't have that little background detail, we miss the beauty of God saying, I'm going to restore you. I'm gonna, the, the thing that your granddad did wrong, by the work of my spirit, the fear of the Lord, and the movement of obedience, you're going to do right. And so he takes it, and he's saying, I'm going to make you like a signet ring, Zerubbabel. So we have this, this curse of a signet ring removed because of the disobedience of Zerubbabel's grandfather and the blessing of obedience to be made like a signet in Zerubbabel himself. A king would give his signet ring to an important minister to show the king's confidence in the man and to grant him his own authority. He's saying to Zerubbabel, I'm going to give you my authority. As you lead these people, I'm giving you my authority to lead them because you're doing it right. You're moving in obedience. You're like a signet ring. And in Matthew 1, verses 12 through 3, we see the name of Zerubbabel 
in the genealogy of Christ. And so it's interesting because promises were made not just to Zerubbabel, but to Zerubbabel, the heir to David's throne, the predecessor to Christ. He was a chosen guardian of chosen people. Zerubbabel was the rebuilder of the Lord's house. He was the restorer of the dignity of the line of David. And what we find is that those things that Zerubbabel was, he was but a shadow of Christ. All of God's promises to Zerubbabel would finally find their fulfillment in Christ. In Haggai 2.9 it says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So he's saying that when you rebuild this temple, it's going to be greater than the former house. Does anyone know what the former house is talking about? Solomon's temple. There is no greater verbiage given to the amazingness of Solomon's temple in the Bible. God's saying, you rebuild this temple, then it's going to be greater than the beauty of Solomon's temple. So the thing that we have to ask as we read that is, how can that be? How would this temple be greater? And the answer is Christ. The cool connection in Haggai is that you see Zerubbabel's granddad taken as a signet ring and thrown away. Then you see Zerubbabel being obedient, God moving differently in the people, restoring them, telling them what their priorities need to be. He's like a signet ring. He has the authority of the king. He's entrusted. He's trusted by God. And then it says, the cool thing is that why will the temple have more glory than Solomon's temple that was like amazing and huge and ornate? And it's because that particular temple that they end up rebuilding It had some ups and downs. In the second century, it was sacked again, but it still remained. It wasn't just gone the way it was when they came back from exile. It held on until Herod the Great. That means that the temple we're talking about here that they're going to rebuild was the temple that was standing in Jerusalem when Jesus came and entered its precincts. That's cool, right? This is the fun of Bible study. It's a little bit different than a sermon because we kind of got to work through it to get there. But the beauty here is that the temple that they're rebuilding was the temple that was standing in Jerusalem when Jesus came. Christ was the signet ring who would be entrusted with God's judgment, entering into the temple in Jerusalem, making it radiant as it had never been before. He was the chosen leader of God's chosen people. Christ is the guardian. Christ is the rebuilder. Remember, this whole book started because of the wrong priorities of the people of God. They were spending and being spent in the wrong areas. I'll end with a quote, and uh, we're, we're pressed for time. So John Wesley once said, How can you, on principle of reason, spend your money in a way which God may possibly forgive <laughs> instead of spending it in a manner which he will certainly reward? You can say that about your money. You can say that about your time. Why would you spend it in a way that he might forgive when you could spend it in a way that he'll certainly reward? I'll send out some notes, some follow-up thoughts uh, tomorrow, maybe Friday, um, regarding what we've covered in Haggai, because there's, there's a lot, even though it's two short chapters. Um, but I want us to be able to spend some time on it in our homes, um, thinking over some of these things. So y'all can anticipate uh, that via email. Let's pray. Lord, I, I'm just floored and thankful to be able to see these promises that are kept throughout the generations. Um, and I'm thankful that you, you make us a temple Help us to take seriously the call to, um, to holiness. We thank you for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go get your kids, please. <laughs>